Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Was that handball? Hello and welcome to episode three of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, We'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week we've once again got a full house. That means Lee and the Lion are wearing the captain's armband, is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, in, in the world of a Spurs fan, mate, this, this week is much better than last week. Um, so looking forward to getting into this one and, and looking forward to some good football chat with the guys. Yeah, there'll be lots of that this week. Don't worry about that, which means, of course, you're also joined by Fulham fan Matthew. Matthew, I hope all is well. And how have you been this past week? Yeah, it's it's all been quite good. From Oh, hang on. Hang on. Spurs have just scored again, just so I'd let you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's been pretty good, even if the Fulham result wasn't exactly perfect. But the rest of the footballing world more than made up for it. Top man. And of course, last but not least, is the long overdue return of Man City fan Paul McGarricky from the excellent Over the Bar website. Paul, it's been a while, but how have you been, my friend? It has been a while, but I've been all right in the circumstances. Uh, it's good to be back, though. Can't wait to get stuck in. Cheers, mates. Right, before we get stuck in, let's do the social media bits first. Otherwise, we'll be talking to the Abyss once more. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at DanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club, which is Broken 400, and we're on the move. So, after that, if you can find me via iTunes, which is great, you can do that by going to Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find it on SoundCloud and Audio Boom. Or the easy way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. Also, I want to give a shout to Freelance Football Opportunities. They're on Twitter, also at FFOps, 
If you're a freelancer and looking for paid jobs, they do an excellent weekly newsletter in return for a Patreon contribution of about £3 by the time you convert the currency. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's a fantastic resource for you to use in this current climate. Right, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Let's start at Goodison Park, because this was one of the many gold feasts of the weekend. And Carl, James Rodriguez is quickly showing his worth to Everton after pulling the strings against the baggies. Yeah, I have to admit, you know, it was one of those players that I, I guess if you'd asked me, did would I would like to see Spurs sign him? You'd probably have said, mm, I'm not so sure, you know, as he lived up to the hype from that World Cup. You know, he's been to some big clubs now and hasn't been able to settle anywhere. Um, and maybe his time has come and gone. But when you look at the way he's playing for Everton right now and what he's brought to that side, I think there might be a lot of clubs that actually are sitting there now looking, going, oh, you know what? We may have missed out on one here because this guy looks to have some real quality still about him. Um, and he's certainly showing that in an Everton shirt at the moment. Um, and obviously, you know, he's been part of their cracking start. Um, and if he can keep that kind of form up, then, you know, who who knows what can happen for Everton this season. But he will be a real key player by the looks of it and one that potentially could take the Premier League by storm. Yeah, it's all for him, really. I mean, he has that perfect symbiotic relationship with Ancelotti. He seems to be a player that gets the best out of him. Some were overcritical and saying he was written off with his sort of lacklustre performances over the last couple of seasons, wherever he's been. But sometimes a move is as good as a rest and it could just be the thing that catapults Everton up the table. But Matthew, we must not forget Everton did not have it all their own way to start with. As West Brom took an early lead, we could spend minutes sort of lambasting Pickford, but that's been done in the past. So I just want to ask, how pivotal was the chance from Jake Livermore when he hit the post? If that goes 2-0, are we looking at a completely different complexion of the game? Yeah, it's 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 one of the cliches, but it, it is you know, perfect in this situation. It's a game of inches. And I don't think, well, I I don't think it would have quite been the same. I don't I don't necessarily say that Everton would have been completely out of the game, because as it showed, they had the they had the quality to do so, but it certainly would have made it would have made it a far more interesting one. Um, but I just think on the day Everton were always going to be too too good for them. So it maybe maybe it would have made meant a draw rather than a, a thumping win for Everton, but. Yeah, it is one of those things that Jake Livermore's gonna regret, you know, towards the latter end of the season when they're desperate for points and look back and think, mm, could have done better there. Paul, I think it's fair to say the turning point of the game was Kieran Gibbs' sending off. So he'll have to hold his hands up for raising his hand. But when you look at him, I guess you consider him a more senior pro in relation to that younger West Brom team. That's not really a good example in front of his largely experienced teammates. No, it's not. And to be quite honest, I was, I was surprised when I saw that. Not just because of like the fact that it's Kieran Gibbs, who's uh, you know a, a seasoned uh, top level player uh, with a lot of experience behind him, but just the, the sheer stupidity of it. You know, it was it was ludicrous. Came out of nowhere. Um, so yeah, he'll be disappointed, and, and so will obviously the, uh, the the Baggies fans that had to witness it. Of course, Cole. It looked like at that point the heads had collectively gone. So Gibbs is sent off. Bilic has taken umbrage to that. Now, the protocol says that a manager can have a chat with the referee sort of as they're, you know, in that sort of dressing room space. Of course, at the moment, the dressing rooms are split. So the only scenario where Bilic can get to the ref is on the pitch. Now, to the law, you can't go to the referee on the pitch. So is that fair to see Bilic sent off or is that just Mike Dean being Mike Dean once again? 
Yeah, I, I think this is probably a mixture of two things, isn't it? You know, as we say, we, you don't want to see managers hounding referees. Or you don't even want to see players hounding referees. Um, but, you know, there is also some extent where I think you probably say that this is also Mike Dean taking an opportunity to get Mike Dean in the headlines again um, and thinking, oh, OK, OK, what, what can I do? Oh, red card, this this could kick off a little bit and, and this will get me in the spotlight and, and my name will be in some of the reports, match reports here more than it probably should be. So I think there's a mixture of things. I, I say, you know, Bilic, you know, was probably maybe a little bit too strong in how he's protesting. But then I do also think that you've got a character there in Mike Dean who, who doesn't need an excuse to kind of create some controversy. Uh, and he's look and taken advantage of that again. You know, I think we'll still look back and I still say that, you know, I think Spurs should have done more around the incident that happened at Burnley. Um, a few seasons ago when obviously we had the incident of the confrontation between Poch and Mike Dean. We clearly know there was something said there that Poch and his team didn't like, but then the club as a whole, in, in my opinion, kind of bottled actually calling Mike Dean out for what he actually said there because I think if they'd come out and said that, you know, Mike Dean has basically criticised the club or, or made a comment that was kind of mocking something that had gone on, then I think Mike Dean would have found it very hard to kind of defend himself there and some punishment may have maybe sort of had an effect on him and made him realise that he might have to wind it in a little bit and just make sure that he's actually just a man in the middle and not being reported about constantly for creating controversy. Um, but I, I think there's a mixture. I, you know, I don't blame him necessarily. As we say, Billich shouldn't have gone and confronted him maybe as strongly as he did. But I, I still think there is an element that Mike Dean likes likes to get himself in the reports a bit too often. Yeah, you do wonder if it was a referee like, I don't know, Paul Tierney, would it be such a race for the red card out of his top pocket? Maybe not. But like you say, Cole, at the same time, Bilic has given Dean very little option because the letter of the law is exactly that. And you can't be seen to be admonishing officials on the pitch. What precedent does that set? Etc. Etc. So a bit of a halfway house, maybe leaning towards Dean slightly more than Billich's own fault, but, you know, it's just one of those things, I guess. Also, Matthew, once West Brom were down to 10 men, Everton certainly went up through the gears, didn't they? Dominic Calvert-Lewin, now on four goals for the season, after a hat-trick on Saturday. How integral will he be to Everton's hunt for success, and could it be his genuine breakout campaign? Um, It could be his breakout campaign, but I think we've been waiting for the Calvert-Lewin breakout campaign for a little while now, because he's been slowly, slowly making his way into into the you know into the peripheral vision for Everton he's been he's been there but he just hasn't quite got there i think this really this really could be i think ancelotti's a kind of manager that can get the best out of him and i also think that you know i don't i don't want to start doing it right now but there is that little chance of the England call up because oh, I think on, I think he's... on the plane, get him on the plane. Exactly, yeah. Right, where's where's the bell? We need the England, the England bell. We have a Jamie Vardy. Um, I think there's also going to be that element there with the Euros coming up next year. He's going to want to sort of put that extra little thing for him. He's going to be key for Everton. I and I think he'll do. I think he'll do an excellent job. But I also think that this motivation of trying to get an England squad ahead of the likes of, you know, probably not ahead of the likes of Kane, but certainly to be an option for Gareth Southgate to take in the. 23, assuming the Euros still go ahead next year, I think that's going to be just a little bit extra motivation that he's going to need. And he could, I can easily see him making, you know, 15 to 20 goals a season. He's obviously off to a great start to doing that. And Paul, 
on this show, we often consider Everton as a fantastic vehicle for debate because you just never know what you're going to get from them and their sort of aspirations and how they keep missing the mark, shall we say. On the early evidence that you've seen, I know it's two games, but do you think they've got a genuine crack of the top six this time or is there still work to be done by Carlo Ancelotti? Um, no, I think there's a, a sense of refreshment as we're in, coming into this season with, with Everton. It's almost... Um, like the start of a new era, or at least that's how it feels to me as an outsider looking in. You know, they've made some fantastic signings already, and it could be obviously one or two um, other changes to the squad before the window closes. Um, but I think that from what we're seeing of, of the performances under, under Ancelotti and the, um, the, the the doing, I think things are moving in the right direction. It, it's been. I don't know. Some people would say that going back as far as as Coleman and then uh, uh, you know the, the seasons that followed that that it was almost a false dawn for Everton. But I, I don't think that that's fair. I think it's just that you know trying to build something that's going to be sustainable. And I, and I think or it feels to me like this season could be a good one for them. I'm not saying top six, but I certainly think that they are slowly moving in the right direction. And you can almost sense a. Uh, a level of optimism around um, the, the club at the moment. Yeah, there's certainly a feeling of upward trajectory. Now, whether they can achieve that, of course, it shouldn't be too hard because their league position was disappointing last time around. So any improvement this time will be sort of well welcomed at Goodison Park. Whether that's enough to get into the top six with the competition that I have, it might be one step too far. But like all clubs, if they can keep that trajectory going, then it might only be another season down the road, which then makes the life of the big six clubs even tougher than it is already. But Cole, later that afternoon, it was Leeds versus Fulham. And I think it's fair to say after their display in week one, Marcelo Bielsa's men have quickly earned, or they've taken that mantle of entertainers in the division. Because if they keep this up, all the neutrals are going to be absolutely salivating at watching them this season. Yeah, I don't think if you're a Leeds fan, you're going to be too excited. <laughs> no, no. You're going to potentially book yourself into a hospital <laughs> after every match day. Um, but as you say, if there's a neutral fan, <clears throat> if that continues the way they're playing at the moment, you will be sitting there thinking, well, whoever Leeds are playing, I'm going to watch their games because that could be open. You know, we, we they might score goals, they'll concede goals. Um, but they certainly look fun to watch at the moment. <clears throat> I guess, you know, if you're Bielsa, you know, you'd be pleased with the two performances, you know, and the goals they're scoring. But I think the major alarm bells will be ringing with what they're doing defensively, because, you know, if you want to survive in this league, then you can't be shipping threes and fours every week because eventually, you know, if the goals dry up slightly, you're going to be in some real trouble. So I think they'll be reasonably pleased with their two performances, but they will be sitting there saying, listen, we'll need to close up shop and, and stop making some of these silly defensive mistakes. Otherwise, we will be in for a long season because if the goals dry up, you know, that defensively like that, you will be in trouble. So Matthew, we need to talk about Fulham. So... They should be commended for scoring three at Ellen Roads, but they've conceded four. They've conceded seven for the season. It seems the same ugly issues from two seasons ago are already rearing their heads. How does Scott Parker address this problem? By buying a centre-back, it's, it's as simple as that. And can I just say, Leeds have conceded the same amount of goals as Fulham. Yeah. So this, well, this narrative this narrative needs to be somewhat... Okay, if, if, let's just calm it down ever so slightly but i mean got, they've got three more points haven't they so but is... they've conceded the same amount of goals so it's not it's not a perfect system but i think but true, i think we're all... anyway on to fulham i think 
it's obvious, and I think I've, I think I said this last week, and I'm pretty sure I said it even going back to last season. We need it. We need a new centre back because the defence that we have at the moment just just isn't doing it. We need at the moment we've got uh, Tim Ream and Dennis Adoy sort of rotating that left centre back position, who are both ball playing centre halves, and. I'm of the old school that a defender's job is to defend rather than to pass the ball around. If he if he can pass, then it's a bonus. But his first job should be to stop the ball going in the net. And at the moment, Tim Ream and Dennis Doy aren't doing that. There's been some form of progress. You know, guys like Juan Foyth is a name being mentioned who I think would be a fantastic signing. Uh, Jonathan Tarr from somewhere in Germany. I want to say Werder Bremen. Um, no, by Leverkusen, Leverkusen. Somewhere in Germany. I was right. Um, I think that would be a bit of a step forward. Because that's that's really it. Going forward, I said it against Arsenal, there were enough signs that would make me confident that we'd be able to score goals, and we saw that against Leeds. But it's just conceding goals that is our downfall at the moment. I mean, admittedly, it is only two games. This probably does put us out of the title race, um, admittedly. But these six points drop that we you know easily could have got could come back to haunt us in a relegation battle, which we are probably going to be in. So we need to get these problem solve it and fast and it's really only one position that's going to solve it you mentioned Foyth and Tar now if I was a Fulham fan I'd be taking Tar but as a Spurs fan I'm sort of hoping you take Foyth and get him off the books is that a fair statement Cole? Uh, it's really bizarre isn't it Dan because Foyth is one of those that for some reason I still think there might be a, a half decent player in there I just think right now if you're Fulham and you're looking for a defender that might be shoring you up at the back I'm not so sure Foyth would be my first choice for a defender that I'm thinking, well, if he comes in, it'll definitely bring the experience and that that we might need to stop conceding goals. Because I think the fact he's learning the game still, um, I, I think you'll probably find he's prone to mistakes. And then in theory, that won't help with you shoring the defence up and suddenly stop conceding. I think he'll just probably contribute to you conceding some more goals while he's still learning. He reminds me a little bit of the John Stones, likes to play out a little bit too much when maybe he shouldn't um, and that can cost you so Foyth if I was Fulham Foyth would be off my list yeah I don't see enough of a step change in what they have to what he would bring to think actually yeah that's solved our problem so I think like I say Matthew if you're going to get a centre back go to Germany don't worry about Foyth but Paul I want to ask you about Patrick Bamford because he's always a striker who's sort of deemed too good for the championship not good enough for the Premier League with that said he seems to be making an early mockery of that statement so far do you think this is the season he can finally make that transition? Well, I think for his benefit, I certainly hope so. I mean, you know, he looked good in this game. He seemed to have fit the, the, the role of the sort of the, the lone striker in this particular system and, and linked up quite well. I thought he was he was quite unselfish and, and um, obviously, you know, he picks up an assist and he, he's, he's clinical enough to, to get his own goal. But I think for him, it might be more of he's one of those type of players who shines in a certain formation and then you take him out of that and he, he can't quite adapt or it doesn't suit his strengths rather than it, it being a case of him in between being a Premier League striker and a Championship striker, if I'm being honest. Um, I mean, from what I've seen in these you know, two games so far, he seems to have got a, a good grasp of what Bielsa wants and it seems to be working for him. So I, I do hope for his benefit that it, it comes good because it's been a long time coming you know, since... Uh, he broke onto the scene, should we say, um, when he was on loan from Chelsea. I think was it at Derby County when he really started to to get the goals in the Championship. With Bamford, I'll stay with you, Paul. Is there still that sort of I wouldn't say element of distrust, but because he's not part of the system as it 
we sort of know it. It's that privately school player who's been, you know, looks a little bit outside of how we view usual young talent. Do people still sort of take to him differently, do you think? Um, I don't know if... Well, I mean, it's never really occurred to me to look at it like that, if, if I'm being quite honest with you. Um, I think with him, he's he's more... Every time I've seen him play in other uh, teams, other systems, he's been quite a frustrating sort of player to watch. Uh, hasn't always displayed the same sort of bite or sharpness that, you, that you'd want. Um, but again, I don't know if that goes back to there being a system um, or a formation issue for him or not. But maybe maybe there is something to that. You could be onto something there. Who knows? We'll wait and see for the rest of the season. But, Carl, when we talk about transitions, it's fair to say that Leeds are still a little rough around the edges. There's no doubt about that. And I don't know about you, but Robin Koch really worries me as a defender. What's been your assessment on his first two Premier League offerings? Yeah, so far he's made some some kind of mistakes that you sort of think he'll have to eradicate those from his game quite quickly because, you know, it, let's say if you're going to defend like that in the Premier League, <clears throat> you're going to get caught out massively. And we know the quality that's in the Premier League, it only takes one mistake and suddenly it's a goal. And before you know it, that could be the crucial one that's cost you a game. So I think you will need to cut that out. But, you know, there's enough of a talent there to make you think he could be a good defender. But I'm sure, you know, Bielsa, I don't think, is a man who's going to suffer someone not really doing the job he wants him to for too long. So I'm sure they might be having a little word to sort of say, listen, you know, come on, we need to cut this out. But I guess that goes with the whole side, really. You know, I think they, as a team, probably need to be a little bit more solid defensively. And I'm sure they're going to probably work on that as their main priority for the season. Because like I say, they look like they can score goals. But if you're going to ship three or four in pretty much every game, you're going to be in big trouble as the season goes on. And Matthew, for you, I want to put the focus on Ian Meslier. So he's young and that's not necessarily a criticism. That's fine. But when you look at him, there's a sense of rabbit in the headlights at times. Would they not be better with Kiko Casilla going forward? Um, No, personally, personally, I think Ian Meslier... I, he's he's growing he's growing into it. I think he had a bit of a hard time last season because Kiko Casilla, you know, was was the dominant number one. Then his situation came about, and Mesley was sort of thrown into the situation in the last sort of seven to eight games of the season. I think he's still getting adjusted, but I do think having watched Leeds quite a lot last season, uh, both you know, both as a championship. Uh, supporting fan and and for work purposes, I think Messier does have the potential to be one of a very very good goalkeeper. I I, I wouldn't make the, I wouldn't make the shift to Kiko Garcia just now because a there there are there are a whole bunch of Leeds fans that basically do not want him in the team because of his indiscretions last season. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but also they see that Messier does have the potential and in this in this modern age of goalkeepers who's you know good at stopping shots and is good you know distributing. Um, um, distributing pass at the back. He's not quite Edison, but he's you know a good a good chunk of the way there. So I think he's a very good modern goalkeeper, and I think he will get better and better as the season goes on. So I I wouldn't be willing to drop him. No. Okay. So Paul, talking about Fulham going forwards, they look like they are reliant on the talents of Mitrovic and Cordova Reed. With that said, do you think they might need an extra body in the window before it closes? Yeah, I think if I was a Fulham fan, I'd, I'd certainly be hoping for for somebody else to come in. Um, you know, I, I think as good as a striker Mitrovic can be on his day, I, I think it it's a lot to to ask, you know, to be so dependent on on particular him as a as a focal point. And um, I, one of the things that that they 
suffered for, apart from the defensive issues, the last time they were in the Premier League was, uh, in my opinion, it was creativity and a, and a, 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 a sniff for goal, as you say, I suppose, uh, being able to, to find something from nothing. And, and Mitch Wicks can bring you that, but I, he's not a, a 90 minutes every weekend sort of player. That's his, that's the problem. And um, yeah, I'd be wanting another person just to feel a bit more um, comfortable of chances of staying up this season if I was a Fulham fan. Right. I cannot wait anymore because it's time to talk about Gareth Bale. Now, Paul, I'll start with you because you're someone who's a non-Spurs supporter and a non-Wales supporter. So you're sort of the most neutral <laughs> candidate here. So, most importantly, what do you make of his return? Um, I Well, I'm excited as a non-Spurs and non-Wales fan. Um, I'm conscious of the fact, though, I watch a lot of Spanish football and I, I do cover it quite a bit with uh, the writing that I do. And he is not the same player that he was Obviously, when he left Spurs, it's a different type of Gareth Bale that you get in here. Not just the fact that he's older, he's you know more experienced and more uh, wear and tear on his body. He just he, he hasn't got the same explosive sort of um, sprints that, that you know really caught everyone's eye. Um, I'm excited. I'm hoping that he can try to replicate some of the the form that he showed. Um, we're talking, you know. Um, six or seven seven years ago now really when he left um but he i would be cautious of the fact that he hasn't played 30 games or managed 30 league games in a in a season for best part of five years i know he's played a lot of golf but injuries have also been an issue for him regardless of who was the real madrid manager so i think providing Mourinho is able to to manage him well and the the uh the medical staff at spurs are able to manage him well i think he could be um, you know, a, a difference of six or seven points for Spurs this season compared to where they finished last year. OK, Matthew, as a Wales supporter, how important will his return to activity be from an international, you know, Euro 2021 point, point of view? Yeah, that's really that's really all I could turn about. You know, no offence to you, Carlo, <laughs> any Spurs fans. To be honest, you could lose every single game 4-3, <laughs> Bale scoring a hat-trick. I don't care. This is literally all about him. Again, for me, this is all about him being in a position to help us get through, you know, looking forward to 2021 and also the Nations League, which sets us up for the World Cup and so on and so forth. That's my that is my only care about this. Um, it's going to be good. Um, you know, as uh, Paul mentions, he's not he's not going to be a 90 minute every single week sort of guy. He will get injuries. He will get little niggles. Jose Mourinho does have to manage him you know, somewhat efficiently if he wants to get the best out of him. Again, both for Wales and for Spurs. But on the whole, it's been fantastic. Actually, no, I, I, I don't say on the whole, it's been fantastic. His squad number, what the hell was up with that? Oh, just the lack of available options, I think. I don't give think... him 15, give him something in the 30s. Gareth Bale does not wear number nine. I blame this all on Eric Lamella for sticking around. Yeah, What's he doing there? He's not doing anything good. <laughs> How do you get rid of him? Just <laughs> holding on to that number 11 shot for no reason. Just get him out. It's it just not, doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm a sort of squad number purist, as you know, Matthew, and it doesn't really resonate too well with me. But, Cole, I think we'll have to overlook that because as Spurs supporters, and I want your opinion, just how much of a catalyst will that be in terms of our hopes for a successful season this time around? I think it's a massive boost, isn't it, in terms of, you know, bring it, bringing a player of that calibre to the squad um, and you're hoping that that impact that he has on players around him is going gonna, is gonna to be massive throughout the course of the season. I think, as the guys say, I think 
the one thing, or as much, I think most Spurs fans are probably sitting here thinking we're really excited, but then, you know, you do have to temper it with the fact that, yes, it won't be the same player. We are going to have to manage him. And, and, you know, we may have to sit there expecting that, you know, he could play two games and then we may not see him again for, you know, three or four while he, if he has a niggle or something like that. You know, we won't be seeing those runs down the wing, you know, the night of the taxi for Mike on. You know, we're not going to see that Gareth Bale. But I just think the quality he will bring um, and, the you know, the buzz that he'll bring with him and, and the lift in the squad could be massive, potentially, like the guy said, from going from, say, maybe six or seven up to challenge him for fifth or fourth, hopefully. So, Carl, I'll stay with you now because let's focus on Spurs on Sunday. There was some very good, some bad, a bit ugly... An impressive scoreline, but you have to temper that with a very indifferent first 45 minutes. Yeah, the first 45 was utterly dreadful. Um, and if Southampton had had their shooting boots on, then, you know, that that game could have been long gone by half-time. So, you know, you have to thank Lloris because he made a couple of really blinding saves. You know, nearly cost us at one point when I think he makes a mess of the coming out. And thankfully, the ball hits things on the arm, so that gets ruled out. But overall... You know, that first 45, I think we say, you know, when when that whistle was blown, thankfully we got the equaliser, but that didn't kind of disguise the fact that we just didn't look like we had any idea. The players looked a little bit lost and actually you were sitting there. And for me, it was just making me think, you know, the jury is still out on what Jose Mourinho we've got. Is it the one that can come back and suddenly do do something special? Or are we just looking at the same Mourinho that United had, where the football's not great, a little bit dull, a little bit boring, players turn against him very quickly, and before you know it, you know, he's being shown the exit door, and again, you know, has picked up a lot of money, um, and the fact that he's not the same manager that he was in the game may have left him behind because, as I say, some of the football we've seen so far in the first few games leaves a lot to be desired. Um, but thankfully, Southampton kind of lost their heads and uh, gave us the win that we much needed. So, Matthew, that second half was pivotal in all of this. At what point should either the Southampton players or Ralph, or Ralph Hartenhutl be saying, do you know what, I don't think this high line's working today? Um. Yeah, it's it, it's one of those things. I don't want, I don't want to put this down to you know, is is was it just a Jose Mourinho tactical masterclass where he figured out something that something that was working, or was it Hassan Hutel working out? You know, basically failing to realise something. Um, I don't probably probably after the third, I'd say it's not going to work. But at the same time, what di- what difference was it really going to make? Because you've still got to try and get back into the game. You've still got to be somewhat attacking. So. It's probably something that was probably never going going to change, but it, I, but I wouldn't put you know this all on Hassan Huzo. It's it's he's probably still experimenting somewhat because you know all these teams didn't have a preseason, so he'll probably realise after the game that this system might not work. But it just came it just came a little bit too early for him to realise it during the game. Fair point. I won't complain because it obviously played into Tottenham's hands. But Paul. Hume Min Sung will get the plaudits for scoring four goals. Harry Kane made them all and scored one for himself. So by laying so many on a plate, it showed an element of his game that many often forget about the England star. Yeah, definitely. For me, I know, like you say, obviously Song gets a lot of credit, but I felt like it was it was more of a, the Harry Kane show than anything else. Um, you know, the, he's a player that you say his his vision is sometimes overlooked. Um, you know his ability to bring others in, into the game isn't something that you get to see enough of. Or when you do, 
it's usually overlooked by him scoring a goal himself. I mean, obviously, in this case, he did, but it's the fact that he's, he's set up so many. Um, for me, you know, he, he looks back to his best. Uh, he is obviously the talisman and um, and he should be as the captain. Um, he's got a good understanding with, with the likes of Son. It's quite, you know, I suppose if you... If you're a Spurs fan, obviously it's exciting. And if you're a, a team that's outside the top three or four sides in the Premier League, it's quite a frightening thing to think that you know Spurs are going to have Bale, Kane and Son running at your back four at uh, points during this season. Oh, yes. Rubbing our hands with glee on me and Cole. But more than that, it's across the season because that win for Tottenham puts us already three points ahead of perceived top four rivals, Manchester United. And Cole, after having their start delayed by a week due to their European exploits, that was the worst possible start for the Red Devils, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it looks like their start's been delayed by at least two weeks, doesn't it, now? <laughs> um, with that performance. So, some, you know, really strange. You know, they just didn't look good. You know, I I think we've said it before, haven't we, Dan? Um, we know lots of teams are actually still kind of almost in that pre-season mode at the moment and looking for games for fitness and that. But United just didn't look at it at all. Um, and Palace, you know, fair fair play to them because they took full advantage of a weak and poor Man United performance. But also some strange decisions, you know, Van der Beek not starting the game. You kind of question, well, what was Ollie doing there? Because that was just a bizarre decision, bringing in a player of that quality. Um, but you just got to hope United, that kind of wakes them up so they get going because that performance w- would have been really worrying um, and you don't want to see too many of that because before you know it, you'll be um, you'll be chasing the pack. And, and as we know, you don't want to be chasing the pack because you can easily get left behind. Um, so United will need to up it drastically in the next couple of games they've got coming up. Matthew, Wilfs are half scored twice for Palace. That's three for the season already. There already seems to be more of a directness to his game and also an element of just getting on with it. Yes, he'll still get kicked, but last season where he was sort of moaning and, you know, obviously taking real obvious umbrage to it. Now it's a case of, you're going to hurt me, but I'm going to hurt you by getting the ball in the back of the net. Yeah, uh, and, it, and it's fantastic to see. I think we, we all sort of complain, you know, it, it, with players like Jack Jack Grealish is another one that sort of gets put in this in this bracket as well. Players that get that get kicked a lot. It's good to see that he's sort of taken the you know the more mature approach to it. Maybe you know maybe there's some other reason to it. Maybe it's just a case of Roy Hodgson has sat him down and said, you know, grow up, kid. Essentially, you know, what was that effect? Um, but it's good because we're seeing we're seeing the best out of him, and we're seeing the the player that you know Spurs and you know Man United, however many years ago it was five years ago, um, wanted to, wanted to buy him for, and you know that's only going to pay dividends for Crystal Palace, who I said last week are you know very much on the way up, especially if they can get that that third you know pacey forward in. Ben Rama's been linked, and Zaha as always will be the catalyst for that, and it's going to and it's going to pay dividends for them. Yeah, fantastic result. I think the first real coupon buster of the season and in that game, Paul, was one of two contentious penalty awards that we saw across the weekend. The other one being Southampton Tottenham. So Lindelof and Doherty giving away handballs. We're now at a point where it seems to be any contact with the hand to the ball is relating to a penalty. That can't be a good thing now, can it? No, and um, obviously last season there was all sorts of uh, issues with the handball rule and when they said, I think it was around about January or February time, they announced that they were going to review it for this new season and, and try to improve it. But if this is what improvement is, then you know, I, I think there's still a long way to go because it, it it disrupts the game. It makes things, it takes the human element out of it. You know, 
we, I don't like to see soft penalties given when it's a you know a borderline foul, let alone when it's a, a inadvertent handball. Um, I mean, obviously, if, if it goes your team's way, you're inclined to take it, but it's just it, it kills the game for me a little bit. Because if you think about it, Colt, if this sort of rule where it is at the moment, it's sort of implying that you could just smash the ball against someone's arm from a yard with no real sort of intention of scoring a goal, but just looking for that. Let's say if you're in the corner of the box going away from play, you just smashed it against the defender from short range. You could just get a penalty from that. And the next thing you know, you've rolled the ball into the net. You know, surely we've got to get away from that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that is the worry now, isn't it? You know, if you're a defender or, you know, the opposing team and, and the other team are in your penalty box, you are just thinking, just keep your hands everywhere out of the way here because the minute your hands are visible, as you say, if the player's good enough, he might be able just to smack it against your hand and there's a penalty. I guess what doesn't help with this rule is, and again, this will be the thing that I think really kills it and gets us all quite frustrated over the course of the season, will be when one's given one week and one isn't given the following week. You know, say we have the incident, we'll probably come to that game in the Arsenal-West Ham game where the ball clearly strikes the Arsenal defender on the arm in the box and then that isn't given as a penalty. So, you know, this is the sort of stuff where they have to get it right. You know, if you're going to bring this in, then as much as none of us like it, we'll accept it if everything's being given every week. But you bring something in that's not going to go down well and then suddenly, you know, each referee interprets it's a different way and one week you're being punished for it and the following week you don't get one in the box for you, then that just creates even more animosity towards something like this. So I think we need to have a bit more common sense, but if they're going to do it, then that's just hope for some consistency here so that we're not seeing those incidents where, you know, it just gives people a stick to beat, to beat something like this around with because that, for me, is the worst thing you can have, the inconsistency. Well, this is it, Matthew. This is the danger that is probably staring us in the face because if the rule was absolute and it was literally any contact with the hand to the ball, penalty, whether you liked it or not, if it was the absolute rule and it was applied across the board, yeah, you'd moan, but at least you know where you stand. We could get to next Tuesday on this show and we talk about handball, which wasn't given compared to last week. You can almost sort of see it happening, can't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I don't want this to be, be a, a VAR thing. I think I, I've, I've said this before. VAR is this isn't this isn't a VAR problem. This is a rule problem. And VAR is all it's doing is basically officiating what is a very bad rule. I think it you know, either take it out of the VAR conversation. So we take it out or, as you say, just make it more clicker. I think in um, hockey, in field hockey, I think it's a rule that basically if it if it hits your foot, regardless of if it's intentional or not, then that's it. It's a I've no idea. I don't know the things of hockey. A free hit or whatever or whatever the rule is in hockey. Basically, it's a it's a pit penal. You're penalised basically if it hits your foot, regardless if it was intentional or not. That is something that should really come into into football. But at the same time, is it not really on the defenders to sort of know that this is a thing and you know adapt the way they adapt the way they play to sort of know that. You know, don't hold your hands out in any you know unnatural position. They should they should know about this. The example that um, you gave earlier, you know, if the ball's you know in the corner of the box and you just want to take a swing at it, try and hit and hit the guy on the on the hand. You know, in that situation, defenders 
arms by your sides. Don't have it. Don't have it hanging out, or otherwise you'll otherwise you'll get feels for it. If it's by your side, if it's within the what's the phrase, within the body shape or along those lines. If it's within that, then you can't get then you can't get penalised for it. So it should. So some of it should be on the defenders to know that you know don't take any stupid risks. Otherwise, we could get penalised for it. A very fair point, Matthew. But remind me not to get uh, get you onto the real hockey podcast because I don't think you're you're up to speed with your rulings there. But get me on the ice hockey one, and I'll be fine. Right, Just okay. the field one. That's the only problem. Right, duly noted. So Matthew, talking. Sorry, uh, Paul, talking of adapting. There's also been adaptation in terms of the use of monitors and referees. How have you sort of seen that over the first two weeks of the season? It's given the referee a bit more control, and um, it's it's something that you know. If you think pre VAR, one of the main talking points you'd come away with um, would be the decision made by the referee who was there to officiate the game. And I think by putting it to the to the referee now to go and review the monitor himself and make a decision it brings that talking point back into it rather than this faceless VAR um, issue that we've had. It, it brings it back more to a, a person that's got um, got influence and, and it's ultimately their, um, you know, their input that, that makes the decision. Um, I think it's something that, that we should see more of. I, I think the way it's it's been done so far, I mean, obviously there's been one or two um, decisions where it, it's, it's brought up... Um, more of a conversation than we'd expect with um, with changes to, to um, colour of cards and stuff. But I think it, it means that that referee at that time has got the opportunity to have the final say, and I think that's great. Yeah, I think it's fair to say the early signs have been encouraging. If that can be sort of rolled out across the other 36 weeks of the season, it should be a lot better than what we saw last time around. Let's move on to Sunday, because, Carl, Liverpool, they're two from two. And if Let's... Chelsea were to offer... Shall we say something of an early season test? Not only was it relatively easy, but Liverpool also passed it with flying colours. Yeah, I think this we you know really disappointed with Chelsea this weekend because I think given given obviously the business they've done in the summer, you were kind of sitting there thinking, well, this was a real test for this side first of all to see, well, okay, you've done some really great business. What sort of impact is that going to have on your season? And they really had an opportunity to kind of lay a marker down and say, well, there you go. You know, we've we've beaten what was effectively one of the best teams in world football last season. So we really have got the bit between our teeth. And they kind of really meekly just kind of laid down, let Liverpool run over them. Um, some, you know, some stupid, you know, the sending off quite rightly was a sending off. Um, and then after that, you know, when you've got a goalkeeper in goal who is going to just be all over the place and kind of potentially cause you more problems than anything good, then you've always got a worry there. You know, I, I know some Chelsea fans who are saying once the red card was done, they were effectively playing with nine men in their opinion. So they've got a real problem in that position. But I think it was disappointing. Uh, Liverpool just did the job that they needed to. And once the red card came, you knew there was only going to be one winner from that game. Um, but Liverpool have kind of set, set the marker. They've started really well. But I was expecting a lot more from Chelsea. Matthew, we spoke about Kepa last week and you said that you weren't going to portion blame to the goal that Brighton scored last Monday. I don't think there could be any arguments regarding his howler last Sunday. Yeah, I think that I think that one is is, is very much on him. Uh, you don't is is all of it down to to a lack of confidence? Is some of it down to you know basically in the position he's put in? The fact that you know Liverpool, as we know, play high press, like to pressure the, the people on the ball. 
is you know would he have been able to do that against you know, someone who's not as proficient again like let's say fulham for instance a, a poor team would they have been able to get away with it probably um yeah i think it, it was pretty much right right on the wall and that is you know nail in the coffin i'm so you know just before we came on the chelsea of more or less confirmed or having a medical with uh, Edouard Mendy, goalkeeper. So I think that may be the last howler that Kepper makes as a Chelsea goalkeeper. So, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that was going to be my next question for Paul. So I'll I'll get your opinion because it does seem that that will be the final act for Kepper. Is it a case of he now becomes so much of a bust that no one actually wants to take him on? Because if you think, if you're a goalkeeper which is lacking confidence... You don't want to be thrown into the lion's den, make another mistake. Because if you're a potential buying club, you're thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll look elsewhere. So do they have a very expensive white elephant on their bench now? I think they do, yeah. Um, and I, I get what you're saying, obviously, that, that Hallers and the confidence might be an issue. But I still, this is this is a goalkeeper who, for me, also doesn't have the right application and attitude. You know, I, I was there at Wembley when he refused to come off, when his number was up on the substitute board and... Some people have argued that that cost Chelsea the uh, the cup final because um, Willy Caballero would have um, been able to save a couple more penalties than, than Kepa. Um, for me, it, it, he's not really ever looked like a... Is it 70 or £75 million? Yeah, pounds? It yeah. was just less than Alisson, wasn't it? But he's never really looked up to that price tag to me. And I, and I, except I've covered a bit of Spanish football over the years and... Um, speaking to um, two fans of, of Bilbao when um, when the transfer was lined up, and, and they they couldn't believe it. They were rubbing their hands together. Really, um, I don't know. I think yeah, if if Chelsea can find a buyer, which is a big if at this stage, um, you know they'll want to move him on because he's not on low wages either. But I, I think he's he's done the damage to his own reputation here. Yeah, he's, I think he's a busted flush, and I don't know what Chelsea get from him in terms of a transfer fee. I think they can get fifty million, especially in today's market. Then that mm. can only be good business because I think, like I say, if you're any club, but I don't even know where he sits in the hierarchy anymore. I just I think it'd be bad business to get Kepa at present. But Carl, talking about good business and big business, Liverpool have done some more themselves because Thiago Alcantara has come on. He joined Bayern, came on for forty-five minutes, had so much of the ball in such a short space of time. You're thinking already. That's going to upgrade the champions in the middle of the park. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think it's a bad signing, is it? You know, I don't think we should read too much into the game at Chelsea because once that sending off happened, there was it was only just one way traffic from that point. So, you know, I, I don't think we can read too much into that one game. But listen, he's a quality player and he will just bring some extra quality to a side that I think we were all hoping didn't actually get themselves any in the summer because they were hard enough to catch as it is. And if you just had players like that, then, you know, they are just going to become harder to beat. So, yeah, he will be classed for them. Good signing. Um, And I say we did see what he can do on the weekend. And I expect to see some more of that. Matthew, they've also purchased Diogo Yota. Now, I must admit, for me, this one came out of the blue, which I think it did for quite a few people. With that in mind, what role will he, will he play at Liverpool? Is he almost the new sort of Shaqiri that will come in, could play a number of roles and just sort of fit in as and when needed? Yeah, absolutely. That was my that was my first thought because you look at the signings, the, the signings they made and the squad they have, Jurgen Klopp probably won't want to disrupt that starting eleven too much, so he will be, you know, you know, first man off the bench as it were, 
in term in terms of substitute. I also think I also think this is this isn't a signing that's mainly brought in for for the Premier League. I think this is basically a strength and depth for when they need to play you know Champions League games or cup games or anything to basically give the first team players players some rest and how and without having to rely on the likes of you know Rian Brewster who could be who could be on his way out for all we know um Divock Origi it, it's another it's a bit of a little bit of extra quality for them to take on when they have to play you know the you know I, I don't I don't 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 sound too harsh but you know the cliched farmers from Belarus <laughs> those, those sorts of teams not that I I'm not saying it but everyone else does but those sort of games you know to give Salah and Mane and Firmino a bit of a rest, and also in the Premier League if he needs to do it as well. This is just basically a sign that they can compete on multiple fronts this season, so they can go deep, you know, maybe maybe challenge the hundred points in the Premier League whilst also going well in, into the Champions League as well. I think that's what this signing's mainly about. So, Matthew, what you're sort of implying is that Yotta will be used against the likes of Karabag and Bate Borisov. Is that what you're saying? I mean, not not exclusively. No. I'm pretty sure there, there will there will be times when Salah needs a rest, you know, either injured, suspension, or other. He'll 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 play he'll play roles there as well. But that I reckon that will be his main job is to is to is to be a rotation squad breakup player sort of thing. Yeah, I understand, mate. So, Paul, I've got a listener's question, and it comes from my good friend Jason Pepperell. So, Jason, thanks for sending this in. He asks, do Liverpool need a fourth centre back in their squad? Or will they utilise Fabinho as a sort of extra body there now they've got Thiago to play in front of him? I think they will use Fabinho in that role uh, unless a, a, an affordable option becomes available um, because they've, they've focused their funds further up the field. And given that their, their game focuses a lot more on, on um, high and wide, so that, you know, the, the flying fullbacks, it means that you can afford to drop a holding midfielder in as a as a centre half and and replace him like that. You know we saw last year Fernandinho at Manchester City playing as a, a centre half and um, you know with the exception of Imeric, excuse me Imeric Laporte, um, Fernandinho was actually one of City's uh, better centre halves uh, ahead of you know John Stones and Nicholas Otamendi. So I I, I can see Fabinho. Um, doing a, a very similar role for Liverpool, um, if need be, um, I think he could he could do it more than well, um, given the way that, that Liverpool play and the fact that they they win the ball higher up with their you know obviously with the, the high press and everything. But it's the fact that the way that they 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 then move it out to the channels and keep it wide. So I think yeah, you can afford to have Fabinho in that role, and unless a bargain um, suddenly starts to to appear in the market, I don't think they'll they'll um, go out of the way to to make a big signing. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. And Paul, I'm going to stay with you because if Liverpool are champions, Man City are this season's favourites. So you watched it last night. Do you think they lived up to their early billing against Wolves? <laughs> um, it was a great first half performance. Um, City, you know, they started like they meant business, and um, Kevin De Bruyne was played in a in a free role that. We haven't really seen him do over the past sort of eighteen months, two years, as, as you know, uh, as other players have, have occupied that position. Like David Silver has been in the pocket in the past. Um, the team selection at the beginning was Pep, obviously making the most with, with the players he had available, um, and I think it's fortunate in a way that you know you could have uh, Fernandinho and Rodri together. Uh, in the centre of midfield and, and De Bruyne then running the show uh, like he did and, and like I say for the for the first half especially 
Um, City were in control of the game and, and they were creating chances and, and they should have had um, more goals than, uh, than they did um, as the half-time whistle fell because then the first 20 minutes of the second half, um, Wolves looked like they'd you know, actually woken up and, and they really started to give City a game. Um, the, the problem is for, for Wolves that they, they did look like they only really had one, um, one game plan. I mean, in, in fairness to them, it was the same game plan that they used to beat City home and away last year, which was, you know, give the ball to Traore and, and, and unleash him against City's central defenders. Um, but the way that, that um, City had set themselves up, it starved him of uh, of, uh, of the ball for, for the most part of the game, bar, barring the, the patch in the um, early few minutes of the second half. And that's not to say that, that Wolves didn't have chances because um, Podence looked quite dangerous throughout. But overall, it was a, a relatively straightforward win for City. It's not bad for first game of the season, um, you know, given the, the, the late, back, uh, late comeback that they've had. And there's a few injury issues in the squad and, and coronavirus has um, sidelined Ilkay Gundogan. And um, I think Laporte's another one who's... Yeah, it was another one uh, tested positive. So it's 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 making do at the moment, but uh, there's still some incomings to happen at uh, at City. So Matthew, as far as Wolves go, are they now becoming victims of, I guess, what we could call the football hierarchy? Because they've lost Doherty and Yotta to bigger clubs. Do they have to get used to their current standing and the threat from others? Because they could be cherry-picked if they're not careful. Um, They could be, but... I've made the point on the on this podcast before. I do think the Wolves are starting to build to build a bigger thing, and if they can continue on their upward projection, then yeah, I don't think they'll be cherry picked as a whole. I think they'll be able to keep the main core of their squad together. They may lose one player a season, for instance. Um, I mean, I mean they've lost they've lost two, but I don't think it would really be any major you know fire sale sort of situation. So I, I don't really hold much you know much panic. For them, for them in that sense, because I think they'll be able to keep the majority of the core together. Basically, because I do think they're going to keep on this this upward projection, as it were. If they were to fall behind, say the worst comes to worst, and Nuno Espirito Santo gets you know offered the job at Barcelona or Real Madrid, because you never know what's going to happen there at any given point. Um, if that were to happen, everything were to start falling apart, then yes. But I I, I wouldn't be panicking about it just yet. Well, Cole, it seems they fully embraced the uh, the Portugal Wolves tag. Have you seen their third kit release? I mean, I don't think they're even trying to hide the fact anymore they're Portuguese, are they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's a, a strong connection there, as we all know. Um, and like as you say, Dan, but they're not they're not really hiding it anymore. I think no. they're quite proud. Um, and I guess you say, well, fair play to them because it's served them well so far, isn't it? Right, we've got about five minutes left of four matches, so let's do the last four really quick fire. Carl, I'll start with you. Newcastle-Brighton. A good win for Brighton, one that's puts their opening weekend defeat to Chelsea well behind them. Yeah, they, 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 they haven't looked too bad, actually, Brighton, since the start, um, even in that first game defeat um, at Chelsea. So that was a really good win for them, especially on the road. Um, and I think, as we're going to see, you know, that they could have a good season if they can keep those sort of performances up. Um, but I tell you what, a well-deserved win. Uh, and that was a really good result. So let's hope for Brighton they can keep that kind of football going. Matthew, you get Arsenal West Ham. A tough one to take for the Hammers after what Carl said earlier about the sort of lack of handball and all that. And also their bad start continues. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I think this was a game that you know West Ham were probably looking for more of a performance than than a result because there was there's just too big a gulf between them. And I think that there will be some signs that you know that will encourage West Ham. The fact that they managed to get level with them, the fact that they you know felt they'd be aggrieved, could have got a penalty, which I think would have, um, which would have been the equaliser at the point. Then you know score the other one, make it two one. I think there's enough for them there to think we're not. Yeah, will be okay, but there are still a few holes that need to be um, that need to be fixed. One of them being central defence, because I don't think they'll be able to do with with the current lineup that they that they have. But there's a, but I think there's enough there for West Ham fans to think that they'll be not not out of the woods completely in terms of relegation battle, but not in total danger. Okay, Paul, you get Aston Villa versus Sheffield United. I think it's fair to say Villa's persistence against ten men finally paid off in the end. Yes, it did, yeah. Um, I know, obviously, there's been some complaints from um, Chris Wilder about the consistency of the sending off with uh, another challenge that, that happened um, by Matt Target uh, for Villa. I mean, even if it if it was, uh, you know, another red card there and it, it brought it down to, to uh, 10 men apiece, I don't think it would have really changed the outcome. I think Villa, like you say, persistence uh, did them well here and they're a team who I felt sorry for at large parts of last season because they worked hard. They they're making the most with the the, the players that they have, and I, I think that sometimes um, the results didn't go the way that that their performances warranted during the last part of um, you know the season just gone. But um, you know this this occasion it, it paid off well. And I'll take Leicester versus Burnley. So Leicester they're certainly out the box quickly. That's two from two. I think they need that after their bad end to last season. And that's going to be sort of interesting to see how they ultimately shape this season after such disappointment and whether they can be competing for a top four, top six space again. Add Everton into the mix, Arsenal, it's going to be really, really tough. But if they can, it only shows more progress is happening at the King Power. Right, take a deep breath because that is about full time. We've just about squeezed everything that happened last weekend into the last 60 minutes or so. So I just have to do the admin, which first up, I need to thank Paul, Paul, a sterling performance and a welcome return to the fold. I hope you enjoyed that one. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's always good to uh, talk football with you guys and, uh, you know, uh, hopefully it won't be too long before I'm back again. No, absolutely not. Much appreciated and we'll definitely get you back in the fold soon. Matthew, excellent work as always and thanks for your time again. Thank you, no worries. I just hope the next time I'm on we'll be talking about a full and win for once. Okay, and Cole, the captain's armband is going nowhere. I hope you'll join me next Tuesday. Certainly will, Dan. Really enjoy talking with, with you guys. So, yeah, look forward to next week. Top man. Right. Fantastic. Cheers for you guys. And also thanks to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.